This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Housing. It's an issue that's gone from something we rarely thought of, that we took for granted, to being the hottest political issue of the day. Elected officials at the federal, provincial, municipal levels are all talking about housing and what we can do about prices, how we can build more homes to bring balance back to the market. And the man they often seek out for advice on that issue is Ben Rabideau, the focus of this week's edition of the Full Comment Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Full Comment Podcast. My name is Brian Lilly, your host. And before we get to our guest, I want to remind you to please hit that subscribe button on whatever app or device you're listening to us on and make sure you share this podcast on social media because yes, you can still share podcasts on social media in Canada. Now, ben Rabideau has agreed to spend time with us over the next little bit to try and delve deeper into the issue of housing. Ben is an entrepreneur, a data guy, the founder of Edge Realty Analytics, and someone that politicians of all stripes are regularly seeking out for advice. Few people can say that both Justin Trudeau and Pierre Polyev have consulted them on an issue, but that's because Ben looks at housing and what needs to be done from a data-driven rather than a partisan lens. Recently, he spoke to all parties at the Finance Committee of the House of Commons on what needs to be done to solve the housing crisis. And now, Ben is making time for us. Ben, thanks for the time. Thanks for the invitation, Brian. It's, um, is, is it shocking to you that in a few short years, we've gone from this being just an expectation that we would all, you know, as I said, come out of school, save up some money, buy a house, that this was normal. And we've gone from that being what we all expected to people saying, I will never own a house. It is just not feasible in my future. How shocking is that to you? Well, I guess as someone who kind of lives and breathes housing and has for the past decade, it's, it's in my mind, it's been a slow burn. So I know it's kind of leapt into the public consciousness really in the last couple of years, particularly with the recent run up in interest rates. But it's been sort of a simmering crisis for, for quite a while, um, masked in part by the fact that we had such exceptionally low rates for so long, but, but we could see this building imbalance between supply and demand um, that was sort of simmering under the surface for, for years, really. And then um, we saw the run-up in prices, and then it kind of catalyzed when we had this run-up in, in interest rates that, that has really forced it. But there's a second thing as well that, that I think is um, perhaps more pressing at the moment, which is just the incredible disruption that we're seeing in the rental market. And that, I think, is, is really um, perhaps the easier of the, the policy solutions to address, because when you really start to dig into the root cause of that, 
Um, it's, it's really very simple. We've had an explosion in the number of non-permanent residents in Canada, which is, I, I know, is something where we want to talk about the whole population dynamics, but just to frame the issue, out of Ottawa, we have a federal target around permanent residency. And so it's set at 465,000 for this year. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anyone really has a fundamental issue with that particular target. Uh, I think we all recognize we need, we need strong immigration. Um, so we'll set that aside. The feds target permanent residency, but separate to that, we have non-permanent residents. And these are primarily international students and temporary workers. And those numbers have absolutely exploded. We've added 700,000 in the past year. Um, it's accounted for that cohort has accounted for 71% of population growth over the last two years. And they're overwhelmingly renters. And so you you have to, it, it seems kind of common sense when you say it out loud, but yeah, if you add 700,000 renters into the Canadian population in a year, you're going to have enormous issues in the rental market. And, and, and that's exactly what we're seeing. I know that Mike Moffat, who works in this field, um, professor at Ivy School of Business at Western uh, University of Western Ontario, he's looked at this and he, he plotted out in a couple of charts how the the cities and towns with the highest concentration of foreign students being brought in um, had the biggest rental crunch. Is that your experience as well? Yeah, the numbers are really clear. You just can't get away from it. Uh, I, I think this is such a simple. It's such a clear correlation here. You just you can't you can't get away from it. So seven hundred thousand in a year, uh, of course, is going to have all sorts of externalities in the rental market and beyond. And it's uh, it's a uh, one of the kind of low hanging policy um, discussions that we should be having, right? It's it's uh, it's something that can be addressed, um, you know, relatively cleanly. So the the numbers that just came out of Stats Canada yesterday were that as of July first, twenty twenty three, there were two point two million non permanent residents in Canada. Um, that was a forty six percent increase. From the year earlier, as you say, if you just say non-permanent residents, that's everyone from uh, someone who you know, gets a job is a, a, a migrant farm worker, someone who gets a job coaching an NHL team that isn't a Canadian citizen, anything like that. They all qualify under that. But the the biggest concentration is the uh, explosion in, in students. It, it seemed to catch the government by surprise uh, that the, the new minister was brought in and we'd been talking about seven to 800,000. And he said, no, we're, we're going to have 900,000 this year. I mean, that's, that's a large city that you're just put plopping down in the middle of the country with no planning for how to deal with that population. No forethought in terms of, okay, well, we can bring these students in and the schools can make a lot of money off of them because they can charge extra tuition. But there was no thought to what it would do to, you know, will they have a place to live? We've seen in North Bay, some students living under uh, under a bridge in tents. Um, but, the, I mean, it, it seems like the, this was a, a d- policy decision with no forethought of the consequences. Well, I think that's exactly the issue. It's It's not that we necessarily have a fundamental issue with that level of growth. It's that you just can't drop that many people without any forethought to, to how you're going to house them and what sort of strain that might place on some of the, you know, the social systems broadly. And um, it's just, it's just flat out a policy failure. Now, 
what, one of the things that gets tricky in all of this and, and, and that I find kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess offensive is that you alluded to the fact that the post-secondary institutions obviously welcome international students because of the much higher tuitions, right? Typically four to five times the mm-hmm. um, Canadian students. And, but what's interesting is I, I don't think people realize that oftentimes colleges and will partner with for-profit entities to outsource the teaching to them. And so, for example, we have colleges in Ontario that have 80% of their enrollment are international students. Um, and, and those colleges partner with these for-profit entities that handle the teaching. They effectively um, are, are responsible for the recruiting internationally. It, so it's, like the, the, it's like the school has franchised out their name. That's exactly right. And so we're effectively allowing for-profit entities to outsource this. And, and, and there's, no, there's no caps from the government, which to me, like the incentive is all wrong there. If you're going to incentivize people to, to make this sort of money by bringing students here and, and sort of gaming the system with no responsibility to provide that housing, like why wouldn't they? It's free money, right? And, and even more alarming than that that you might find interesting, Brian, is I started doing some digging on this because this is what I do. And I, I pulled up the articles of incorporation for just one of these companies. The very first one I opened and two of the three founders were from mainland China which I don't know what that means, but I think as Canadians, they would probably, we should be somewhat alarmed that we have for-profit entities owned by non-Canadians that are effectively selling citizenship or fast-track citizenship uh, in Canada with no responsibility. It's just, it's, it's not a good look and we need to be looking more seriously at this. Well, and for people that don't know, part of the appeal, part of the sales pitch um, is go to school in Canada, you get on the fast track for citizenship, because if you have foreign experience in, or, or sorry, Canadian experience um, in working or in studying, you get extra points for becoming a citizen. And so that you're right, there is a sales pitch going on at all levels, and people are making a lot of money off of this, but it's having a huge impact on the housing system. Beyond everything else, the housing system is out of whack. And I, I live in a condo building in the middle of downtown Toronto, right by U of T. Let me tell you that the other day, probably passed 100 people on walk with my dog, and 80% of them were young Chinese students. U of T is just one school of many that rely on a, a large amount of foreign students to come in because they've got um, uh, you know caps on tuition imposed by the provincial government. So you've got a whole mess of policies from both the federal government and the provincial government. And the end result is a one bedroom condo near me now costs about $3,000 a month to rent. Right. And, and it also incentivizes speculation in the single family market, right? So one of the things that we're seeing is the economics of rentals. If you were to buy a single family home in Toronto and try to rent it to one family, you're never going to make those numbers work. You'll just be deeply cash flow negative. But if you can instead put 10 or 12 international students in there and charge them each 500 bucks, well, now all of a sudden you have an investment case. And we're absolutely seeing that dynamic where because there's such a shortage of places to live and because we've seen such an explosion in international students, People are figuring out we can just we, we can buy single family homes, remove those off the market. They enter this kind of you know rental pool, jam them full of international students. And I want to be really clear: the international students themselves have been sold a false bill of goods here, 
right? They, oh, they've been taking advantage. Yeah. I'm not. I, and I'm in no way suggesting that they themselves are the problem. It's it's that it's that we're allowing the recruiting, we're allowing the misrepresentation um, of the system internationally, and, and that's fundamentally the problem. And you're right; it's it's a problem at both the provincial and the federal level. There's multiple players involved that need to get together and figure this out. Before we start talking about um, um, trying to bring some sanity back to the um, the housing market in terms of people purchasing a home, buying that first home, getting into the market. I want to ask you about uh, rentals. One thing that I've been hearing a lot about in the United States is the the idea that um, large investment funds are going around and buying up single family homes and turning it into rental stock um, that they're outbidding. Have you seen any evidence of that in Canada at this point? No, I, th- I think that story is overblown. Um, certainly there are corporate interests at play that are buying some. It's it's really not. I think it's an insignificant number. And the reason is just that that business model does not scale in Canada. In the US, you can buy a single family home and you can cash flow it even at current rates because house prices are not so crazy there. If you try to do that in Canada, every home that you, I mean, unless you're willing to bend the rules and, and as I, I said, put a bunch of international students in it, which these corporations are not. Um, mm-hmm. the, the business model it, it can't scale because every time you buy one, you're you have cash flow. You're, you're in negative cash flow position, right? The rents are not going to cover if you're going to finance that at you know seventy percent loan to value or whatever. Um, it's just not a, a scalable model. And so the, the ones that tried to break into Canada and look at that model quickly realized that the economics are not there. So I, I think that that narrative was overblown, to be honest. Okay, but but it is something that's happening in the United States to a degree. Without question, it was happening in the United States. Absolutely. But it can't here. I mean, that, that's in part because our housing prices are so much higher. Uh, how did we get here? How did we get to the point that we're so out of whack with where the Americans are? I, you know, my, my sense from just my time uh, buying and selling homes, and not as an investor, just as a place to live, is that we've always been a, a little bit higher. But now we're a lot higher. And and how did we get on that track where um, the idea of you know a home costing three years of income or four years of income, that, that's, that it's no longer the case? Well, it's been a slow burn. It's, uh, it's been something that's been unfolding over years. The, the fundamental difference between Canada and the U.S., it's first important to note that Canada, in spite of the vast geography here, we're actually very urbanized, right? So there's a very high proportion of Canadians that live in big cities. And unlike in the U.S., we really don't have affordable secondary markets in places like Ontario and B.C., right? It's different when you get on the prairies and out east, but, but, but really the big, the big provinces that move the needle don't have secondary cities that are particularly affordable. So, for example, like you can drive or commute an hour, an hour and a half out of Manhattan and you can find single family homes that are $300,000 US. Now you try going an hour from downtown Toronto, you're not going to find anything for under a million, right? So even when you do the currency adjustment, we're just, it doesn't, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, and so now in terms of how we got here, I, I think that the number one issue is we have just made it so difficult to build homes. Um, we, we've just seen such a, we, there's so much red tape. It's so difficult to bring supply to market that uh, we just have not seen the supply keep up with population growth. And I, and I think that's any policy that we're seeing. And I think we're starting to get a recognition out of Ottawa that 
that is the fundamental pinch point. The federal government can sort of control population growth or, or target population growth, but they, the actual ability or willingness to deliver the supply rests with the municipalities. And fundamentally, the, the issue is that you have municipal councillors that have to listen to their neighbors be like, hey, man, I don't want a shadow from this building in, you know, in my backyard or I don't want. And it's just a constant nimbyism, this not in my backyard mentality that that is really inhibiting the ability to deliver that supply. And so we're starting to see recognition out of Ottawa that that is a fundamental problem. And, and we're starting to see moves to address that. So I'm optimistic that we might start to move the needle there. But it's been a bunch of small things that have sort of contributed to this over time. But that's probably the biggest one. One of the complaints that um, you hear from the more progressive side is that this is about the financialization of housing, uh, that we've made housing something you invest in rather than something you live in. What, what do you say about that argument? Is there truth to it? There is some truth for sure. Um, I don't know that I would frame it as a financialization issue. I think, again, it gets back to kind of incentives. And so... Um, Look, if you look at a chart of business investment as a share of GDP, and you look at a chart of residential investment, so re- investment in housing, renovation expenditures, new construction, um, those two lines have gone in completely opposite directions. So we now have a record low in terms of business investment as a share of GDP and, a, and a very near a record high in terms of residential investment. Now, why is that? I would argue that one of the fundamental issues we have in Canada is it used to be that if you wanted to build financial security, you would go out and you would invest in business, you would build it up, you would hire people, you would create something of value. Um, and that was the, the means to, to create that financial stability. And today, it's really because of the tax structure and some of the incentives and the fact that there is not enough housing. And so it, you know, it creates speculation. Now, if you want to get financially secure, you go out and you buy the biggest house you can and you borrow as much money and then you just sit and you let the, the tax-free capital gains accrue. Um, and that's... That's a problem because what it means is, is we're not investing in future productivity growth in this country. And that is really a major issue. Um, and, and, and so more than anything, I wouldn't characterize it as financialization. I just think we have misalignment in terms of how we build wealth in this country. Well, for I an mean, awful lot of people, the retirement plan is buying their home, paying it off. And then that becomes a big part of their, you know, their retirement future, isn't it? Absolutely, we see that. And so we can look at something like the share of household assets that are connected to residential real estate. It's it's close to the highest on record. So there's no question that that's the case. Um, I just don't think it's it's not conducive long term to building a prosperous economy. And so to, to frame it for you, when we look at all investment in Canada, right? So and that includes public sector investment, building bridges and and, and roads and everything else, private sector investment in businesses, and then residential investment. So housing investment alone accounts for about 40% of all investment in the country. And you might say, well, what does that mean? That's, that's just a nebulous number. There's no context to it. But if we look at OECD countries in the last 30 years that have hit that threshold, there's only ever been three, and it was Spain, Greece, and Ireland in the mid-2000s. And the subsequent years were devastating for those countries, precisely because they had a massive capital allocation towards non-productive real estate and away from, from businesses. And ultimately, in order to justify these high house prices, we have to have economic growth that will build our way out of it. And, and, and in countries that have not had that model, 
it's been a very rough go for them. Now, maybe Canada is going to be different, but I'm not super optimistic that's going to be the case. All right. When we come back, we're going to take a quick break right now. But when we come back, I want to ask you about what policies can be brought in to build that capacity to build those homes that we need, whether it's for those of us who are living here already or the half a million people a year that are coming in just as permanent residents, never mind, as we've already discussed, the non-permanent residents coming in at super high numbers. More on that when we're back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. When you look at the numbers that are put forward by politicians, by housing experts, it's staggering. Ontario alone needs to build 1.5 million homes over the next 10 years just to keep up with where we are now in terms of affordability. That's before even doing anything to bring house prices down. Is that even feasible? Uh, ben, that's that's a question I'll put to you. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of houses going up at at all the same time. Now that's not all single family homes. Uh, you know, uh, the building going up right next to me is going to have several thousand of those, uh, or so, sorry, several hundred at least uh, condo units, but each of them being a housing unit. But can we hit that kind of target? I think it's 1.5 for Ontario, 3.5 million for the whole country. Well, it's a daunting task for sure. We have done it in the past. We have seen that level of construction activity in the past. The problem today is there's just so many roadblocks in the way, particularly at the municipal level. And so how do we get there? I, I think that the path to restoring any reasonable affordability that doesn't involve just a, a dramatic collapse in pricing, um, I think has to be a combination of both demand side measures and, and incentivizing supply. And so um, we've seen the federal government come out just, just recently and, and um, announce the removal of GST on new rental construction that has had an immediate impact. We're already seeing new new rental applications coming in, so that that'll move the needle. Um, I think anything that incentivizes municipalities, anything that ties transit funding, for example, to the willingness and ability of municipalities to approve those those projects um, and, and increase density, I think that's welcome because we do find that that is the the pinch point in, in the delivery process. Um, so that's how you move the needle on the on the supply side. On the demand side, I still think there's a number of smaller measures that can that can work. And so I certainly think that revisiting the non permanent resident programs is very important. Um, I think it's the most pressing need right now. But I also think that to the extent that Canada has been a bit of a porous border as it relates to illicit capital flows internationally. Um, that needs to end. And so the government has... Put- and what do you mean by that? Well, I, I think Canada, because we're a stable democracy, we have strong property rights, and frankly, it's relatively easy to hide capital here. It has been a destination for capital internationally. Um, and and so, it, it, for and, example... And is that capital going into housing? Absolutely. Is that part of it? Yeah, absolutely. So you, you essentially, you're talking about foreign buyers then? It, yeah, absolutely. That's right. That's right. And in particular, people that just want to park their capital here 
um, effectively as a safety box, like a just a you know safety deposit box, um, and, uh, and and leave homes potentially vacant. Now we don't know how big of an issue that is, but but it certainly is happening at at some scale. And one of the simple solutions there is um, the a beneficial ownership registry. And so the idea there is because Canada makes it so easy to park money here and obscure the beneficial ownership relative to other countries, then of course, someone who wants to hide that money is naturally drawn to a jurisdiction like Canada. And it should be much more difficult for them to do that. And so a beneficial ownership registry is important. It just means that you can't hide behind a corporate number. um, And and we actually will know who owns what property. I mean, that's one example um, that I think can move the needle. But anything, you know, we can tighten up on. I, I think we have a problem with mortgage document fraud in this country. There's a very easy fix there. I mean, there's a lot of little things that can kind of move the needle. We tried to bring in a vacant home tax in Toronto, and it was supposed to bring in tens of millions. It, it, it's been a failure because, lo and behold, uh, very few people said, yes, my home's vacant. Uh, please tax me more. Right. Yeah. If you're going to bring in any policy like that, you have to be able to enforce it. And that's fundamentally one of the issues that we have in this country is we're very soft on things like that. And so we bring in policies like that and leave glaring loopholes. Um, that's not a particularly difficult fix. You just need to enforce it and you need to amp up the, the you know, the, the fines associated with it. The um, There have been a, a number of changes at the, the provincial level. Um, I mean, the in Ontario specifically, I, I and I know Premier Eby in British Columbia is making many of the same changes. Um, and, and hopefully the premiers all talk to each other about this. I'll, though primarily this is an Ontario and BC problem at the, uh, at the heart. But, you know, things like uh, trying to lower development charges, trying to uh, say that you can build um, uh, three units on a single family lot as a right, um, or a certain level of uh, apartment building height on major thoroughfares. Are these the right types of answers for for moving development along when you've got this nimbyism where, as you say, people will, will complain and say, well, yeah, more people should live in apartment buildings, but not near me because I don't want the shadow. Right. It, it, absolutely. So the development charge one is a big one. So typically anywhere from 25 to 30% of the value of a new home is various forms of taxation. And so to the extent that we can get that lower, it, it all else equal, it should result in lower new house prices. Um, and, and I think that 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 can certainly help. Well, j- just to give you a concrete example, um, in Markham, just outside of Toronto, development charge for a low-rise home is $162,348. That's a 35% increase from two years ago when it was 120000 yeah. So we've got taxation all backwards. You, you, your listeners are going to hate what I'm going to say here, but I'm going to say it anyways. Um, if we look at property taxes in Canada versus other uh, major cities across the world, and especially in the U.S., property taxes are actually very low. Um, and and what we do instead is we effectively subsidize existing homeowners. And I am a homeowner, so I'm talking against my interest here. But we effectively subsidize existing homeowners, and then we jam the taxes on new builds and effectively push the tax burden onto new people, new buyers trying to get into the market, which is fundamentally the wrong way to think about it, right? What we would rather have is a higher carrying cost on existing homes that disincentivizes speculation, for example, from international investors, and a lower tax burden on bringing new homes to market. And that's, that's how you start to address 
some of the uh, the imbalances. Now, people are going to listen to this and say, well, hey, my taxes are, are extremely high already. Yeah, I know you think that, but go look at other international cities. Toronto and Vancouver have extremely low tax rates. And, and I know that's not well, going to be a popular message, but it's it's the facts are the facts. I, I, I lived in Ottawa for a long time. The po- property taxes I paid in Ottawa were akin to a house twice the size in Toronto. Um because in, in Ottawa, they don't have the, um, the the same corporate tax base to draw upon. Uh, the federal government is the biggest uh, landholder, and that becomes a problem. So in Ottawa, they do have higher uh, property taxes that are more in line with the other international jurisdictions you're talking about. But those types of property taxes in Toronto and Vancouver would lead to riots. Right, exactly. So I, it, it's 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 a difficult solution because good luck running on that platform and getting elected. But but if we're being honest and discussing one of the issues, that is that is a fundamental issue. You're you're making new construction much more expensive than it needs to be, and instead passing those tax savings on to existing homeowners, which is the opposite of what we need to be doing if we're serious about addressing the supply issue. Um, so you know, look. I, there's a lot of moving parts here. It's just going to require a lot of sort of bold thinking uh, on the part of politicians to address this. In terms of um, the what the the federal government can do versus the provincial, it, it seems like for political reasons, they're trying to overlap. So um, Ontario just passed a, a bunch of uh, regulations like uh, we were discussing of how many units you can put on a single family home, um, building as of right, things like that. And now the federal government is trying to come in and negotiate municipality by municipality on some of these same things. It, it, it seems like, well, maybe you should actually talk to each other instead of just coming up with policies to score political points. Right. Well, that's a novel, novel idea, isn't it? I think any of those policies that try to simplify development and, and take some of the decision-making away from municipalities are actually really good thinking. So anything that says, look, if you're going to do X, Y, and Z, the, the default position in municipality needs to be yes. And if they're going to oppose it, they, they need to have a really good reason to. Because that's what we find today is every single proposal that comes forward to bring new supply is just met with a, an enormous amount of red tape and, a, and an immediate de facto kind of no position on the part of the, the municipality. And we, so that needs to be removed. But to your point, yeah, the this needs we need to get all levels of government together municipal provincial federal and and get a round table and figure this out and at least get some concrete and and all start pulling in the, in the same direction but i would say that it, it it's encouraging that at least it's become such a hot button issue that it's forcing politicians to at least at least start to really think about it because um yeah this is the number one issue i think in canada right now we we've got this odd uh situation where, um, you know, as you say, we're a very urbanized country. Uh, we're also a country with huge amounts of land. And yet we've got this strong belief that we've got to protect that land. You know, Ontario's green belt, one example, but even land outside the green belt, people object to building new housing. No, we've got somehow we've, we've got this belief that you can bring in half a million people a year, and never build a new road, a new highway, or a new subdivision. Um, do we need to have a mind shift from either for the whole population or for that part of the population that seems to be very loud, very aggressive, and always wanting to say no to development? 
Well, I, I for sure we do. We need we need to figure out where we're going to house our population um, if we're going to maintain anywhere close to this level of population growth. Um, and so I would put it to the people that are are standing in the way and saying, you, like that are uh, opposing any population or any any new new construction. Like, how are we going to do this? What's your solution, right? And so if we're going to protect the green belt in its entirety, uh, fine. Where are we going to put everyone, right? Um, we, we have to give some serious thought to um, making that construction activity more accessible. And, uh, and if that means that parts of the green belt need to be revisited and, and not the ecologically sensitive parts, uh, maybe that's a discussion we need to have. In, in terms of um, the slogans that you hear, it's build up, not out. Um, I live in a box in the sky that works for me right now, but that's not for everyone. Is, is there, is it right to say that we should only be building up, not out only doing more density or what should the mix be? Well, it's important to contextualize it. The major cities in Canada relative to other big cities of similar population are actually not particularly dense. Um, so there is lots of room there to add density just to catch up the global peers. And so anything that emphasizes that makes a lot of sense because you can you're effectively you're utilizing existing infrastructure. Um, it, it, it's just it's just sensible. So the push towards density makes sense. The tricky thing is it's not always an easy sell for Canadians. because We still have very much ingrained that the single family home is kind of the ideal and everybody wants to have a backyard and all this. Um, there is a, a, a sort of a middle ground that's not explored as often. And, and you'll often hear in the development industry, people talk about the missing middle, right? And so this idea that uh, in Canada, we tend to think of it's either single family, low rise with a backyard, or it's like a you know 50 story condo. And, and in reality, in a lot of major cities internationally, there's a middle ground, which is kind of mid-level development, three, four, five floors, but still decent sized units. You're not jamming people into 350 square foot units. Um, and that really does not exist in, in, in size in Canada. And there's a lot of push to bring that in because it's a, it's a sort of a softer density that, that seems to have some appeal, but is, is for whatever reason, not getting a lot of uh, approval in, in, in the cities. I remember living in uh, Montreal years ago in a neighborhood called Notre Dame de Grasse and whole area that I lived in was purpose built duplexes um, of the type that I've, I've never seen uh, in other parts of the country. And it was designed for the owner to live on the, the main floor in the basement and to have room for a tenant upstairs. And, and to me, this is a great idea that adds density while still giving people that single family home. We don't seem to, to look at those things that, that we had in the, the mid fifties when we were having last having the giant population boom that like we're having now. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly the type of structure that we're talking about. And, and, and those seem to be, um, I mean, it seems to be a reasonable compromise. Uh, but you, what you find is when you try to put those types of developments in existing single family neighborhoods, you get a lot of pushback and, and the municipalities don't, for whatever reason, don't want to allow it because they don't want to hear their own citizens kind of screaming and crying about it. And that's again, gets back to this idea that we have a pinch point in the approval process and we need to think about how we get around that and incentivize municipalities to get on board. Well, maybe uh, voters will start to realize that they've got to, um, adapt to some of this as they realize 
their kids and their grandkids won't be able to afford a home the way that they have. Maybe that will be what finally gets us to change. Well, we're getting close to that crisis point, but but I think it gets back to this idea that if we can clearly delineate, right? So if if we can get a, a, a framework in place where we say to to any developer that wants to bring the supply, if we say if it fits and conforms within this box, the default from the municipality has to be yes. And if they're going to oppose it, they have to have a really good reason. And the other the other thing that we find oftentimes that's frustrating, I know, for, for people trying to bring this supply is it gets you these kind of nuisance lawsuits, right? It costs nothing for a citizen group to throw in all sorts of nuisance lawsuits, add hundreds of thousands of dollars in legals, delay the projects by by a year or more, tie it up in the municipal board. And, and one policy thought should be that if a citizen group wants to oppose a development that fits within an existing framework for fast approval, then they need to then pony up some form of kind of debenture that is then held by the court. And if they lose that appeal, that money goes to the developer. Because right now, there's nothing that's stopping people from just throwing up constant lawsuits against developers trying to to bring the supply. Um, and so it's like, it's, it's, it's a free option. And we need to, you know, we need to think about how to kind of tilt those balances a little. All right. Well, Ben, it's been a great conversation and hopefully some of the political leaders who can make these changes are listening. Thanks for having me, Brian. Appreciate it. Thanks for the time. All right. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. My name's Brian Lilly, your host. This episode was produced by Andre Prue with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spy, uh, Google Spotify, and Amazon Music. Uh, give us a rating, leave a review, and tell your friends about us. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly. <laughs>